0: everybody. I'm here with a wonderful woman today who's written a really heartwarming story about her own journey of opening up her consciousness through her relationship with a beautiful standard black poodle named Brio. Her name is Elena Manis. And we're here today because uh, this is, I think, affects many, many of us watching this right now because so many of us have pets. And this is cross-species communication and care. So without further ado, thank you for joining us, Elena.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: (laughs) You're in the countryside where right now?
1: I'm in Stonington, Connecticut at the moment.
0: Oh, lovely. Okay, good. Well, this story started in New York City where you had a dog that was large, not the most conducive place to have a really feisty, wonderful, large dog, especially your first dog of your life. However, you two made it work in a really splendid way. So first of all, I'd like to start out with what initially, what was your lifestyle like? Because you're a telejournalist, a lifelong journalist. You've been in the field of television producing for a long time now, and that, that's my background as well. So I do get the stress levels of it, and I get the changes that have occurred over the last couple of decades. So high stress job, living in New York City, what made you start this journey Uh, to bring home this wonderful dog named Brio.
1: Well, um, it was surprising in a way to, well, very much surprising to me and to people who knew me because I did have a high stress, very active um, professional life, traveling a lot, um, not terribly domestic. uh, And people who heard that I was thinking of getting a dog thought I was sort of nuts. I mean, how was I ever going to manage it? But I had had a near fatal car crash on a film shoot in Nevada, and it was sort of a wake up call. And thinking that you know maybe there was something more to life than just working like a demon and getting into car crashes. And I'd always loved animals. You know, I thought of them as pets, as many people did and do. You know, pretty much under my control, and now that I was the master. I would master. And um, I would get a dog trainer and and help walking him and everything. And my life wouldn't really change very much. I just thought I would just add this puppy would be comforting and everything else would be taken care of. (laughs) I very soon realized this was um, was not turning out as I expected, like Brio, as I named him. Uh, it was a very independent spirit um, he didn 't listen to me a lot, even though I, mean, I did get the dog trainers, which helped but i I just didn 't feel I was communicating with him. it was i didn 't think I talked dog and i didn 't understand him, and I thought, Oh, I made a horrible mistake, and what am I going to do in fact, I thought of giving him back to the breeder, but you know i hadn 't reached that point quite yet um, after a few months, but I I was really kind of desperate. You know, one time I was walking in the park and he ran off, as he often did, and I was screaming at him to come back to me and walking backwards, and all of a sudden I realized I'd stepped over the edge of a boat pond and into the water. I mean, it was... Someone um, I knew was at the other end, and she said, "Oh my God, that was you!" When she realized, I thought it was a homeless person taking a bath. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> really humiliating. So, so I really, well, I didn't know what to do, and uh, I said, "You know, I put on my research hat, and I heard about people who call themselves animal psychics, communicators, who claim to be able to, you know, understand what." Dogs for thinking and feeling. So I did a little research, and I f- found someone in California who um, had a good reputation. I guess so. Out of the blue and out of curiosity, I guess I called her and asked her to do a reading of Brio, my puppy. And I didn't tell her anything about him or about me, really. But and she turned it turned into a remarkably accurate reading. and She described where I lived in um, the apartment, you know, what Briel liked about it and how he navigated around the furniture in this tiny apartment and what streets he liked to walk on in the neighborhood where we lived and what streets he didn't like so much, all of which was right on the money. I mean it was i could feel it, it was true. And you know, in addition to things about his personality and mine, even that there's no way she could have known when I didn't tell her anything. So that certainly piqued me at my curiosity and started me out doing more sort of research as I called up by calling other animal psychics and seeing what they would say if they agreed with the first one, sort of trying to get multiple sources, as we say in journalism um so that was how it started it's interesting because you were pretty sure this was going to
0: be a one-way relationship he was there to serve you and soothe you and make you happy and cuddle with and you were going to tell him how to do that basically (laughs) yeah right well I've had dogs my entire life I there have been only a couple of years of my life I can think of where I haven't had dogs and certainly learned that one the hard way myself um, I realized early on it, this has to be a mutual relationship I have to honor their preferences um, not make a fool of them not turn them into little performing monkeys because they do not seem to enjoy that at all <laughs> and it turned out I mean it's turned out that every single dog is so completely different in what they bring to a person's life and we're going to get that into that part of the story with you in just a little bit. But first of all, I want to go back. Now, it'll seem like a non sequitur. I want to go back to a time in your life when you were very young, when you had an experience, and I'm bringing this up for a reason, that you had an experience, a remembrance of being in a Mayan life. And you told your mother and your grandmother about it. And basically, they said, oh, you're just making things up and dismissed you. Now, this was a really... This happens to a lot of people. It's happened to a lot of people watching this right now. This can have a devastating consequence in terms of how a person's life plays out in trust, in trusting themselves. So let's talk a little bit about that. What happened when you had that experience? You told the elder women in your life and they said, oh. Yeah, I mean, I didn't
1: think of it as a traumatic experience then, but I was, um, It's vivid in my memory. I was sitting at my desk doing homework, and I was reading a history textbook, and it was something about Mayan civilization and Chichen Itza, and it was some image of like a, I I think it was a sacrificial pool or well, or I mean, that's my memory of it, Um, and I just had this feeling that I'd been there, you know, it was such a powerful, strong feeling, that came out of the blue and then, you know, I grabbed the book and ran into my mother and my grandmother and said, look at this. I, I was there. I know I was there, you know, and, um, as you say, they, you know, dismissed me and said, Oh, you know, don't be silly, Elena. You know, like I'm sure that's not true. You're just imagining it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was the end of that at the time, you know, I, um,
0: that's the beginning, though, of teaching people not to trust their instincts and not to trust their intuition. That's really how that, that process begins for, I think, most people. And then it takes a lifetime to recover it. Fortunately, you have this beautiful dog who's come into your life, who now, now you're getting multiple readings um, on Brio and from Brio, where you're having them communicate what he wants you to know back to you. And you're learning that this dog is an old soul. And you're starting to see there are patterns in what he's teaching you. For example, when you go walking in the streets and he stops to smell the flowers, literally, at the floral shops.
1: Yes, I mean, he was so peculiar for a dog. You know, he didn't go, many dogs will go into a store for attention or to get a treat or something. But, you know, he, he just loved flower shops. and particular. <laughs> told me to go in, and then he would just sit there in the middle of the store, you know, just sitting, smelling, like a statue. Um, and he, he could sit there as long as I was willing to stand with him. But yeah, I, I felt he was literally teaching me to stop and smell the roses, you know, the, in my crazy, chaotic life. And it was remarkable, really.
0: And... Obviously, he taught you patience on many levels. As your journey continued, you wanted, to, you wanted to know more about what Brio was thinking. You'd learned that he was an old soul. You were starting to pay attention and see that he was affecting you in these really remarkable ways and opening you up from this kind of stress laden life and uh, learning that animals and humans are a two way street. So, Dr. Nathan told you now this, this dog is an old soul, and he said he is not going to incarnate again, as a dog. That was one of the readings you had. I'd like you to comment on that and then I'll pass a comment on something I find fascinating that everybody will get to see soon.
1: Well, this was an Ayurvedic nutritionist, Uh least he was an Ayurvedic doctor. And I went to him because I wanted to, I was curious about nutrition. So it was for me and for some reason I took Brio along, maybe it was convenient or something and they allowed him in the office. So I took him, and so we walked in for the appointment, and immediately this Ayurvedic doctor forgets about me, looks at Brio, and says, oh, my goodness, he's an old soul. Yeah, you know, and we can be sure he's not coming back um, as a dog. That's one thing. He said, you'll be surprised. So I, you know, I had no idea. I thought, oh, my God, he thinks he's an alien (laughs) or (laughs) something. really taken aback, and so... He did tell me about nutrition, but he spent most of the appointment focusing on Brio. And it was not an end. Brio just had a magnetism about him, a presence that even friends and other people noticed. Um, A friend of mine said you can look into his eyes and see the pyramids. And that's true. There was a depth to him that, you know, it's hard to describe, but you just felt it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And what, what I was alluding to a moment ago is um, there was a book I read about five, six, seven years ago called The Art of Racing in the Rain, which you may have read. Yeah. And that's being made into a motion picture now. And it has a really good, a really good cast. And I was just looking it up again. It comes out in September of 2019, this year. Oh. And yeah. Yeah. It's well underway, probably in editing by now. And You know, what I loved about that book is it's, and I'm not giving anything away, it's the story of a dog, Enzo, who has decided that he has to prove himself worthy. This is his final incarnation as a dog. (laughs) And so he has to learn how to work among the human realm. And his uh, human companion is uh, a race car driver, I believe named Danny, as I recall. So the, the life has a lot of drama coming and going in it. And he's a very good, uh, he's very good at assessing character, Enzo the dog is. So they go through this life together and it just has a, it's a beautiful story, beautiful characters, beautiful ending. And to me, it it really made me think about that because some dogs seem so incredibly tuned in and conscious. So now let's go to a couple stories. Um, I love the Belmont Steak story. We'll get to that in a moment. But I'd like to get to the story of um, the two trainers that train border collies for as as sheepdogs um, to do sheep runs, which I just thought was exquisite because they seem to view that relationship almost as mystical in nature.
1: Well, one in particular, Donald McCaig, um, sadly, he just passed away, but uh, he also wrote beautiful books about, um life and his border collies and dogs, and I had contacted him because I you know had a sense that the connection between a border collie handler and the dog must be somehow remarkable, and I wondered if there was anything telepathic about it and i I didn't really expect him to support the idea of animal telepathy, but he did absolutely i mean he um, really said some beautiful things about how it goes beyond the hand signals and the whistles and the body language and all that that they use to communicate with the dog. That he truly felt, you know, it was a telepathic or is a telepathic relationship. Um, and he also believes that he, the dogs, his dogs who passed, their spirit returns right after they a past and the other dogs recognize that. They feel the energy and react to it. He said, Absolutely, that's true, that he's experienced it many times. So that was um very validating for my growing belief in, you know, animal yeah.
0: And it's interesting because that's a complex relationship. It's it's more than just a man and, and dog. It also has to do with the sheep. And so this dog knew how to communicate and get in the mind of both species. And the way they work is just so beautiful and so precise. If anyone's ever watched Border Collies working.
1: I'm so glad um, McKay invited me to come watch a um, trial. I'm so glad I did because I never could have written about it had I not experienced Mm -hmm. it. I mean, it's really poetic. I mean, there's something really deeply spiritual about it. I mean, it's almost like magic to watch. (laughs) Yeah, and that's how he described it as well. And so when we
0: think of magic, um, there are a few movies out right this minute. Um, One is what, uh, and a, A Dog's Purpose, A Dog's Way Home, and now I think it's called A Dog's Journey, the one that's coming out in theaters right now. So this has kind of gone on, but we've all read about these real life incidents and even throughout history of dogs who can find their way over vast distances toward their owners. And we've, al- we've always wondered, is it some kind of mechanism such as what you know, migrating birds have, some magnetite in the brain? And these trainers, um, especially the men you're speaking of, s- have said, no, <clears throat> it's an entanglement of mind that draws them back toward
1: us. Um, yes, I mean, that's a, a good way to put it. I mean, also, I'm sure you know about Rupert Sheldrake and his research.
0: Um, Indeed, I've interviewed Rupert a couple of times, yes.
1: Um, so, you know, I talked to him, I would interviewed him before for work, but uh, I interviewed him again for this book um, uh, about his theory about morphogenetic fields, that this telepathic relationship between a being, whether it's a dog or or a human or or groups of the same species or a bonded dog and his person um, takes place through these invisible fields um, that, as I said, he calls morphogenetic fields. It's a term that comes from evolutionary biology, um, which is not exactly energy, as I understand it, which I think he he doesn't conceive of it as energy, exactly, but It's almost more information. Information or like a. Information that Mm -hmm. um, bonds um, or connects bonded creatures, shall we say. So, like homing pigeons who find their way home, or a dog who travels huge distances to find his or her person, or a dog who knows when his owner is coming home, um, even at random unexpected times, and goes to wait at the window. Um, Schulberg, as you know, has done you know extensive research documenting this phenomenon. So it goes beyond just anecdotal stories. Like he's really applied the scientific method to study this um, in some depth. And as you know, he's a Cambridge University-trained biologist, so he certainly is grounded and knowledgeable about scientific methods. I mean, yes, he's come in for criticism because a lot of the scientific establishment.
0: Still doesn't accept, no. but sadly, uh, a lot of them do not support Rupert even to this day, which continues to astound me. The closed-mindedness that can exist within the scientific community because he's he's absolutely brilliant. He's pristine in his research, and Rupert has really, um, I think open the doorway for anyone who's been fence sitting uh, over the last couple of decades about this kind of communication. So you and I are both Rupert fans. We're on the same page. So going back to the communication of dogs, it's really that they can, they are speaking to us all the time. We can't understand them because they don't speak a a language that we understand, but let's talk about some of the more astounding episodes that you encountered when you were dealing with animal mediums animal psychics and not just brio but for example okay when you when you took this on you thought yes i'm excited i think there's something to it and you had power um you were going to take it to the newsroom and see if you could do a special with diane sawyer and a psychic and her dog so let's talk about this because this is the stuff I've done throughout my career. It's like, yes, I have a camera crew, and I have a medium. Let's do this thing.
1: <laughs> and I use my job to pique me you know, to fulfill my curiosity. Yeah. So, um, I did this documentary for ABC called "The Amazing Animal Mind," And I um, included a segment on animal telepathy, and I flew the original psychic that I contacted for Brio. Um, to New York from the West Coast, and um, she met Diane and her dog in a hotel suite in New York. Um, she, Of course, Diane was well-known, so she knew something about her public persona, but nothing else, nothing about the dog. I told her nothing. Um, she retired with the dog to the bedroom of the hotel suite for about an hour and emerged and you know gave a report, some of which was really remarkable, um, she said that he um, he was quite a neurotic dog, but she she said <laughs> that he was afraid of falling. He had this spinning sensation, and Diane did confirm that as a puppy he had fallen into a swimming pool, which was you know pretty interesting. And then another thing I'd done for the story was I'd gone to Diane's home in the country um, and videotaped the dog. Um, Uh, alone, Diane wasn't there, and the psychic didn't know anything about this at all, wasn't there. Um, Videotaped the dog in the yard, um, where he went, he went under some trees, by a stream, um, and inside in her house, um, what rooms he went into, how he went around the furniture, and then later, you know, when the psychic came, I interviewed her and asked her if she could describe what the dog did when he was home, outside and inside, and you play the tape against it, it was absolutely on the money. She said, well, he goes out and he walks by the stream, he goes under the trees, Um, he likes to go into the dining room, under the dining room table, and I had all this on tape, so it was pretty pretty remarkable.
0: (laughs) It is remarkable. And um, another story, this is, has to do with a horse rather than a dog. Horses are magnificent creatures. And uh, you you decided to, again, just test this out. Let's see if you can predict, if an animal psychic can predict the winner of the Belmont Stakes. Now, this this is high-stakes journalism because it could turn into a real flaw. So, <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> so you hired an animal psychic named Don. And now you're going out to, I guess, the stables, right?
1: Yeah, it was the day before the race. And, you know, this was the year that a famous horse named War Emblem was supposed to win the Belmont on the Triple Crown because he'd already won the Derby and the Preakness. Um, so I was hoping, I didn't think I would get War Emblem to do this little experiment for television. But I was hoping for a little horse with somewhat of a chance. But no, the only trainer who would agree to do this, to have the psychic come meet the horse, was the trainer of the longest shot in Belmont Stakes history. It was 70 to (laughs) 1. Zero to 1. His name was Saraba. So I had no choice. So we go out and I'm already like thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten into
0: here? Well, let me ask you a question here. Okay, so were you expecting that the animal psychic could ask the horse who was going to win, even if it was not themselves? They were going to kind of give you a, a lay of the land and a feel for how the race was going to go because they were in connection with the other horses? Is
1: that what you're... Well, idea- not exactly. I mean, I'm trying to remember. I, mean, I didn't think... That the horse, and I thought that I'd get some sense of how the horse felt going into the race. And,
0: About how they would perform.
1: You know, how they would perform and, you know, their feeling, you know, were they nervous or confident or, you know, and if there were some expectation of what they could do, that would be good. But, you know, I was trying not to, you know, put too heavy expectations on it. But also once I knew it was the longest shot in Belmont history, I really I couldn't get out of it by that point, so I really didn't know what was going to come of this at all. But anyway, so we go out, and the psychic dawn meets Saraba, who's in a stall munching hay. So she stands there outside the stall. The trainer was there. Um, with us, um, the horse keeps munching hay, and there was silence for a long time. So I'm thinking, "Oh, the camera crew must think I'm crazy. <laughs> you know, this is this, what is going on here. How am I going to salvage this?" So finally, Dawn says, "He says he's going to win." So you know, everybody kind of gulped. Me, in particular, the, the trainer looked completely shocked and he sort of said plaintively, why does he think he's going to win? <laughs> <laughs> so Doran says, well, he, he knows he can do it. He wants to do it for you and his owner. So um, we wrapped up the shoot. I mean, I, I didn't know what to think. I thought, you know, this is, you know, okay, you know, we'll see what happens. But I had no expectations at all of this actually coming true. Um, so we we go home and the next day is the race, and I'm sitting at home watching TV, watching the race. So for most of the race, Saraba is way behind. The announcer, all the attention is on war emblem, you know, and you know, he's making a move, he's moving towards the front, and Saraba was not mentioned until the final turn when I suddenly hear the announcer start sort of screaming, like Saraba is making a move. Sarava making the move, and then it says, Sarava is overtaking the leaders. <laughs> and he says, Sarava has won, you know, the longest shot in Belmont history has won the Belmont. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I still can't almost believe it. I mean, it was so completely shocking, you know, and finally I recovered enough to call Dawn, and she, she wasn't surprised, but she actually said she was in tears because she was so touched, you know, she felt the horse had really delivered, that he wanted to do this, and he did it, you know, and she really was in tears, you know.
0: It was so beautiful, because this heart, this this horse had to pull up so much from within himself, and have so much will, and so much heart to win that race, uh, considering his background, where he'd come from, and uh, I, I understood that, and, uh, you know, it makes you think about once there's a bond between an animal and a human, how deeply they want to be with and please us. You know, that, that's the real, I think, heart-wrenching part. Oftentimes, it's just the sheer selflessness of that bond. And it's not across all species. And I want to get to this because I thought it was a really interesting point you made in the book, that with wolves, and wolves and dogs or canines, um, with wolves, even a wolf that has been raised by humans since birth, they will not look a human in the eye where dogs will look you in the eye. Comment on that for a moment, because that's really interesting. That's a different level of desire to, um, connect. Well, it is.
1: The theory is, you know, that dogs and humans, um, after dogs became domesticated, you know, sort of evolved to be companions to humans or hunting companions that, um, they differentiated, were differ, differentiated from wolves, you know, because of this bond and the desire to figure us out. Like dogs really want to, to figure us out and they want us to listen to them. Um, yes. that there's, there's really a special relationship between dogs and humans. And I have a cat. I love cats too. I love horses, but dogs, you know, a particular... Um, have a particular feature that I think they're wired to connect to humans and want to connect to humans.
0: Indeed. Indeed. And um, as I said, I've had dogs my whole life. And and really reading your book, I thought, you know, I'm going to start some experiments with Ernest. Uh, Ernest is a little uh, terrier mix, a Scottish Highland terrier mix. And he is... um, well, he's a terrier, which the nickname for terriers is terrorist. <laughs> they're very, very smart. Yeah, I can
1: that with other people's terriers. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: they're, they're a mix. He's, he was treated poorly as a puppy, and he has his suspicions about kind of everybody that's not family. But um, he has these simian eyes and is uh, very, very smart. And there are certain words, there are certain certain things. Uh, if I even think about them, he'll run and hide. For example, if I think, you know, I I, I need it's time for her I need to have a bath. He's like this, and he's gone. So he's sensing he senses a lot of our thoughts. And I thought I want to start playing with him. Just and speaking with him, just telepathically on some, in some new levels. So we're we're going to start that experiment. So I just wanted to share that with you because I think he's a good candidate for it. Meanwhile, you and I both had uh, an experience with the same animal intuitive animal communicator, Lynn Younger, out of Arizona.
1: Right, right. I remember through a mutual friend, family friend. Yes, and, and I found her
0: really interesting. I'll just share a little story. I found her, um, I actually had my, a son at the time had a girlfriend named Stephanie who had a dog named Gigi, and dog was, she was a peculiar little shih tzu. She would just sit and just stare at you. I mean, she wouldn't stop staring at you. For however long you were there, she would just sit and stare at you. <laughs> <So> <laughs> would, yeah, she, and it's, especially Stephanie, and So Stephanie found out about Lynn, who was in Sedona, and I was too at the time, and had her over. And Stephanie said, this was not your dog. This was your mother's dog initially, right? And she said, yes, it was. And the mother had died when the dog was only about a year and a half old. And Lynn said, your mother told her to keep an eye on you. She didn't know about this peculiar trait. Keep an eye on you. And Stephanie said, oh, my God, did she keep an eye on you? (laughs) She's really old now and she's still sitting there with her little roomy eyes, just staring at she spent her whole life keeping an eye on Stephanie, which is just I know. And we're gonna get to that. When a dog makes an agreement, they make an agreement. And we're gonna get to you and back to you and Brio in a moment. Meanwhile, my dog Jeannie was in the house, just sniffing around and sitting near us during this reading. And she said, Oh, do you mind if I tell you some things about your little dog? I said, Sure. She said she is not going to be around that much longer now. And she wants you to start preparing yourself for that, but she is not going to fall ill. She's not going to cause any trouble. Um, She's going to choose her moment and simply slip away. There won't be any ill health or anything. And she was 15 at the time and doing pretty well, just slower, but doing pretty well. Um, Although when I think about it, there was a picture I took of her one day with the sun coming in in the morning And her little body, she was a little Bichon sitting on the carpet, and she cast this very long shadow behind her in this photograph. And I thought, she's leaving. She's going to be leaving. So it wasn't surprising to me when Lynn said that. I just tapped into that moment. So sure enough, true to her word, uh, well, she said, but before she goes, she wants for you to feed her blueberries and steak. (laughs) Uh, Blueberries. okay so (laughs) she gobbled up blueberries by the bowl full she i gave her steaks and she ate very well she was a a little portly by the end (laughs) and uh, one day she just stopped she stopped she she had an asthmatic attack and it was over with it was very traumatic but it was over with very quickly and that was the end and she said she will not be incarnating again as a dog She's going to come back next time as a horse. <laughs> so I just wanted to share that little story. <laughs> I love that. Because some of the people, some of the people that we've spoken with have said dogs can, we can transmogrification, we can change form. The animal kingdom can change form. They right. I mean,
1: Buddhism, Buddhists believe that. Yes. The Buddha himself, apparently, and I learned a lot from Robert Thurman, who wrote the beautiful foreword to the book. You know the the Buddha himself um, said he had had other lives as um, animals, as you know, fellow animals like dogs or, or frogs, whatever. So, and that really is a belief in Buddhism. The sermon says,
0: yes, and also another belief is that animals reincarnate, and that's where we get back into the Brio story because you went through your life and your adventures with Brio. You had communication directly with Brio, but also through animal intuitives when he'd have some things go wrong with his legs and was unable to walk it during a couple times in his life. And as he got older now, um, he's coming toward the end of his life and he's, he's very weak. He can't really walk. You're carrying him everywhere. You're going through that, just, you know, that time where you carry, carried him out a couple to three times a night to do his business and all of that. And finally came the day where you had to decide whether or not to take him to the beloved beach. He loved water and he loved the beach. So tell us that part of the
1: story. Well, yes, when I was living in another part of Connecticut at that time, and um, the beach was up on an island off the coast of Massachusetts, where I had spent a lot of time with him during his life. And, you know, I knew he just loved the ocean, but I was so exhausted from caring for him that I, I just felt, you know, I'm going to have to get the dog sitter and just take a couple days to heal up there. And I talked to one of the animal communicators, and she said, he says, no, he's going. You can't do that. He wants to come. Um, this is not going to happen. So, <laughs> Okay, um, boss. Uh, I was terrified because I thought, oh, my God, what if he dies in the car? I mean, I spent the whole trip looking over my shoulder. I mean, I was just a nervous wreck, but, you know, I knew I had to do it. So I took him up there, and, you know, it was really beautiful. I mean, he had a bad night when I really thought he was going to pass, and I called the vet, but she said, no, it's not his time. But, you know, I took him to the beach, and we just sat there, you know, above the beach, looking out to the ocean, and, you know, I, I knew that he, you know, he smelled the sea air, and he actually got out and kind of walked to the rocks where he used to pee, and I guess he peed, you know, it Was so I'm, I'm so happy that I did that, you know, it was, you know, that I overcame my anxiety, and we had that time together, and I really think about it often.
0: It was a wonderful last gift to each other. And he also picked up his appetite a bit and he lived on a little bit longer. And then he finally did um, leave the world, you know, and you handled it in a very beautiful way. And then you started really, before that, you really started contemplating, will Brio come back to me? You had to, first of all, you had to give him permission to leave because you'd said, please don't ever leave me. And he was stuck with that in him
1: right? Yeah. And uh, the animal communicators really tried to help me to work through that, you know, that I had to feel when the moment time came and to let him go, you know, to set him free. So I I tried to listen to that in the end, but it was very hard. Oh yeah. That's, those are the hardest
0: moments in life. My life definitely has been the passing of one of my lovely little canine companions has always been the most difficult um, the, but the subject of reincarnation, again, there are many traditions that do believe in that animals do reincarnate and they come can come back into your life again, which is what these movies that are out right now are all about. And I have to say, I do believe that that happened one time with a very special dog I had named Sugar Bear. And everybody wanted sugar bear they wanted they wanted to find out how they could get a dog like her she was sensitive beautiful incredibly intuitive you didn't have to do anything to train her except think it and maybe just hold your hand out and she would do exactly what you wanted she lived for love and she was a great companion to me through my 20s which was a very challenging time uh, entering media because I started right out on live TV, was at the network, traveling to New York. It was it was very stressful. And she was always right there and would lean her head over on my shoulder. And we'd just, we'd just sit like that. <laughs> you know how that is. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sugar Bear, after her passing, about six months later, a friend of ours uh, came up and said, with another little white dog, and said, I just saw this little dog, and it seems like this little dog would be perfect for you. And uh, my son's father at the time said, "This dog is acting an awful lot like Sugar Bear." And I thought, could it be? So one day, when she was across the room with her back turned doing something else, this dog named Miso. Um, I I thought, let me try it, and I went Sugar Bear. And she went like this and turned around and came running over to me. And she ended up, he and I went our separate ways, but we stayed near each other so we could co-raise our son. She ended up being that exact same force of comfort, love, and security and joy in my son's life at his father's house all through those years till she was about 15 years old. Aww. It was the same heartfelt presence, the same personality exactly.
1: No, I really believe that it's possible. I mean, I, uh, when, after Bria passed, I really was hoping that he was going to come back to me right away physically. Yeah. But, um, you know, I did get another Black Standard poodle about four months after Bria passed, but I don't believe he's Bria reincarnated. He's a different spirit, and, you know, I, I love him very much also, but he's a different creature. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you say in the book, he's a rambunctious young soul. He still has... Things to learn, where Brio kind of was there to teach you. So, (laughs) well, with all of this, as you've gone through the history now, now you have another dog that you're having to learn to be in companionship or in relationship with in a new way from Brio. What would you say you took away? Because in your book you said that thing that was quashed in you, that learned not to trust yourself when you were little, really – came back over the years and years of validation that what you were feeling about your dogs. So another, an animal psychic would validate for you. So the site using the psychics and mediums was a very good process of internal validation, but let's extend it from there. What have these dogs taught you and brought to your
1: life? Well, um, it, 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 certainly the relationship with Rio and learning how to build this connection did, you know, encouraged me to trust my own intuition. And over time, you know, I've been able to contact Brio more directly myself, like in meditation. And it, it got me started on my own spiritual journey, whatever you want to call it, you know, meditating. And and um, also I, I think the greatest gift of all may have come, you know, after he passed in a way, because The messages, I was so fearful that I'd lose the connection with them, and that certainly hasn't happened. Um, You know, the messages through the animal communicators continued, you know, with amazingly accurate readings after he passed, you know, um, when I really continued to rely on them a lot for validation that his spirit was still there. And I am absolutely convinced it is, you know, that his consciousness, his spirit endures. So that's, you know, a huge shift in, you know, an understanding of reality and existence and, you know, beyond Asprea, but for all living creatures, you know, that spirit does endure, that it exists apart from our physical bodies, which, you know, was a revelation for me. So that was a huge shift (laughs)
0: It's a huge shift, and this book is really a book on spiritual practice, on spiritual understandings, on uh, quantum realities. All of that is woven into the stories, uh, through the stories of animals, and animals and their people, animals and their trainers, and it's a really beautiful book. It's a, a different doorway into the path of spirituality, I think in particular for some mainstream audiences who haven't already really taken this up but who do love their dogs and understand this unique connection with them and their pets.
1: I think it's whether or not you believe or want to be open to the possibility of telepathy and enduring consciousness at the very least, you know, I hope that it um, opens people up to realizing that our fellow creatures are living, you know, sentient beings with feelings and thoughts and they're not inferior to us. They're, at least equal and often superior, um, and they come to be our teachers. So I, I hope people will be more open to realizing that. I hope so,
0: too. So it's uh, I, mine is a review copy. So if someone buys this, they're not going to have this big yellow sticker that says, not for resale. <laughs> but anyway, Soul Dog, and that's, that's a portrait of your beautiful Brio. It just, is. just, yeah. Well, Elena, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today, and I hope your book, your book does really, really well, especially across platforms that serve the mainstream audience. I think it's a wonderful doorway, and easy, and it's a it's a gentle doorway into the world of um, soul and spirituality. So, thank
1: you. And if you want to check out the website for the book, it's www.souldogbook.com. And you have links there to buy it. And this has just been a wonderful interview. Thank you so, so much. You are so
0: welcome. Thanks again. So until next time, again, Elena Manis. And the book is called Soul Dog. And you can go to her website at souldogbook.com. Thank you for joining us today on reginameredith.com.